Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. everyone thank you so much for deciding to tune into this episode today it is being released on the 13th of September 2021 and it is a conversation that I have with an ex-colleague of mine called Christy and Christy and I work together in the English faculty she is also a drama teacher and we also work together on the productions Christy was both assistant director and director on a number of productions that I was a part of when I was the choreographer And we are great friends. I haven't seen her for a little while because she has been overseas and now works at a different school, but it was so lovely to catch up with her and I really enjoyed our chat. We talk about a myriad of things, including, as the title suggests, burnout in this career, as well as finding your way back to teaching when you feel as though you don't have a lot left to give and her new love of inclusive learning and understanding how we can be better as educators to cater to the variety of different students that are in our classroom. We also talk about her love of drama and whether that is valued in society, in schools, and whether or not it deserves a better rap or at least um, more support from educators and from the education system. I don't have a lot to say because Victoria is still in lockdown. Uh, I think parts of New South Wales have come out now. Congratulations. Sydney are definitely deep, deep into that lockdown. I had a really lovely Zoom cocktail catch up with some of the guests that I've had on this show, which was Nathan from Mr. Vandermond, Serena from The Right Classroom and Aaron from Mr. J's Learning Space. We've done a roundtable together. So it was really, really lovely to be able to catch up with people via Zoom. But look, it's really not the same as seeing people in person and without a date to go back. It, yeah, it just feels a bit hard at the moment. We're moving now into, especially for VCE, online assessing, which has been interesting to ensure that that is maintaining the high standards that we expect at VCE. I know a lot of my students have found the fact that regional Victoria are going back to classes while Metro Melbourne is not very challenging. I mean, the flip side of that is the fact that often regional Victoria probably has disadvantages being in remote. So, you know, it is, it's just a lot of inequities going on all over the place during this remote time. So, you know, if you're a student listening, I am thinking of you. I know that this is a really challenging time for you being in remote and if you listen to the episode last week with Michaela one of my year 12 students you know that you know we are very empathetic of the fact that it's not just missing your classes but missing so many of those rites of passages that you expect to have in year 12 so definitely thinking of you I won't prattle on any longer except to say if you like the podcast please subscribe on Spotify follow on Apple I think that's right I think that's the right instruction for each one share on social media tag me at educating laura i always love to hear your feedback leave us us me a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to it on it does help it sort of move its way through the charts so i would really appreciate that you can buy me a virtual coffee if you want to give back to the podcast information is in the show notes otherwise sit back enjoy and i hope you get something out of this episode. I really enjoy my conversation with Christy and I'll see you in a fortnight. Christy, how are you going? Hi, Laura. Good. How are you? So, so good. We have just been chatting before recording, so I might just launch in. If you haven't already realised, Christy and I are great friends and obviously have lots to talk about. So I'm going to get into the podcast conversation and ask you, about what kind of student you were and are. 
So this will come as no surprise to you, Laura, but I <laughs> loved school. I loved yeah. school so much, both primary school and high school, because I loved I loved learning and I loved the knowledge that my teachers were feeding me. And, you know, every day I woke up just so excited to, to go to school and to learn. And then as I got to high school, I was very much a finger in every pie kind of a student. Yeah, yeah. I attempted very poorly to learn the saxophone. I attempted to play softball. I was on the debating team, the social justice committee, the school choir. I did the musicals, Rock of Stedford. All of the things that I could do, I yeah. did. Just because I loved school and I loved all of the opportunities, I suppose, that school was able to offer me, not just yeah. in the academic realm, but also in the, the curricular realm as well. Yeah. And I think that's part and parcel of the reason why I wanted to become a teacher, just because yeah. I love school so much. And I wanted to provide more students with that experience and that love of learning and that love of, of being a part of the school community as well. Yeah. It seems to me like the community thing was very big for you. Like yeah. not just about going to class, it's all the other things that encompass an opportunity of all the opportunities of education. Oh, absolutely. And even now to this day as, as you know, as, as, as a teacher, it's part of my role and what I love doing is creating a community for kids, um, especially with school productions and being a drama teacher. I think there's something really special about the drama community and about mm. the production community and a space where kids feel that they belong. And, you know, as well with our experiences together of doing productions, just yeah. how you can have kids from all different scopes of, you know, the school community come together and become one. And also just how a lot of kids feel that maybe they can't find success in the classroom and maybe the academic side of school isn't really for them, yet they come into production and they feel a part of a community and they feel part of a family and they feel like they can find success in an aspect of, of school, which I think is wonderful. Can you speak to one of your maybe favourite memories of working in productions? Is there any, maybe a particular production or a situation in production that's really stuck with you? in terms of, of teaching? Oh, I I love the relationship that you're able to create with students mm. that is, you know, far removed from the classroom. I think it's a, it's a different sort of, um, it's almost like a, a, a friendship really that you, can, mm. that you can gain working with kids in the production and just, just, just seeing their confidence grow and seeing their eyes light up when they finally learn a dance step or mm. uh, a line or a piece of dialogue or a song. And it just the confidence that they that they gain from that experience is just incredible. And I think oh, there's, there's far too many amazing <laughs> memories from all of the productions that I've done throughout the many, many years. But, um, you know, I just I love that as stressful as it gets, as mental as it gets, as crazy as it gets, and as as much as, you know, the tech rehearsal before opening night and you pulling your hair out going, this is not coming together. I know. It's always then, two weeks before, two weeks before you're like, yeah. it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And then two weeks happen. later it's on and you're like, oh, it did. Yeah. <laughs> the kids pulled it together. And that's, that's the beauty of it is that, yeah. you know, I think you get so overwhelmed with all the things you have to do and making sure everything's perfect. But you kind of, I think, underestimate the fact that the kids really love what they're doing and mm. they also want to give their best. So they're not going to let their show fail. And you almost have to trust in that as well. So it's a very trusting relationship that you're building with these kids in order to put your show on. And when we did productions, like the last month or six weeks, you've got, you know, two and a half hours on Monday, two and a half hours on Thursday after school, then you've got like a five, six hour rehearsal on a weekend. Mm. Then, as you said, the further you get into, you know, you get your tech rounds and all of that kind of stuff. And so by the end, those last that last month almost, there's not a lot left. And so there's very little opportunity to be the best version of yourself. I don't know if you felt this. And so you're just raw with the kids. And you know what? If you're irritated, you're irritated. If you're happy, you're happy. If you want to cry, it's very obvious that you you had enough. And so I find that it's in those moments that the vulnerability of the educators is really scooped up by the students and they go, you know what? They need us now. And I've never seen as much student supporting student in any other situation really like if the teachers are working there was like what 80 kids probably to four of us perhaps yeah and so you'd see like little groups going off and rehearsing something while we were working with something else and it was just you don't get that very often 
where you look and the kids are, have all got their own thing going on to ensure that they're doing the best work that they can do. I think that's really Absolutely. special. Mm. And I feel like it's it's crossed the scope of the whole secondary campus as well because our mm. productions were 7 to 12. Yeah. So it was nice to see students who would never really normally um, interact with each other from year 7 to year 12 finding a common ground and finding a common space. And you're right, like working with each other and collaborating and helping each other to find success and to create this fantastic piece of work that they mm. could be really proud of. And you're right, like emotions are so heightened in that kind of, in those final yeah. couple of weeks. My mum actually yeah. said um, to my partner the other week, she said, oh, have you um, have you, have you experienced production, Christy, yet? <laughs> just, just be aware. Just, just, just watch out. And I'm totally. like, what? <laughs> yes. No, it's, it's a thing. It's such a thing. And I don't know. I used to find that when production was over, I would just like gravitate towards the production team because it's like yep. we'd experience something that no one else understood. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's kind of like as crazy and stressful as it is, once it's done, you feel like this hole in your mm. heart almost. Yeah. Like, Hold on a minute. Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing? But I'm supposed to be at rehearsal now or having a meeting or mm. hanging out with the kids. So it's very... It's very difficult as, yeah, like I said, as stressful as it is, it's so wonderful and yeah. you miss it when you don't have it. But when yeah. you do have it, you're crazy mental stressed. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's And the thing is that I don't see any other way of it working out except for it to be like that. I don't, yeah. you know, it's just, it's amazing and wonderful and crazy and hard all in one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And people, I suppose people work well under pressure. And so when the pressure's on, things happen and things come together. Yeah. Have you had a teacher or did you have a teacher that really stood out to you and one that you wanted to emulate in any way? Yeah, I actually had two, two teachers, one from primary school and one from high school. Uh, my primary school teacher, it was in grade five. She was this very softly spoken woman, but she was a formidable presence and a formidable force. She was so knowledgeable and had this wealth of information and wealth of knowledge. And I just literally ate up everything that she was saying and she's a teacher that really stuck in my mind um, even as I left high school and then when I was in high school and and you know having a part-time job and I worked at a cafe she used to come in quite often with a friend of hers Mm -hmm. so it's really nice to continue that relationship throughout the years and then I found out that she actually um, developed early onset Alzheimer's and she yeah, and she passed away um, quite early in her life. But she's always someone that has stuck with me and stuck in my head as a teacher who was patient and calm and someone who just loved teaching and loved mm. students and loved imparting her knowledge on students. So that's something that I kind of try to to think about often and try and remember her and, and just how patient she was and as much as sometimes you want to stand in front of the classroom and just, you know, yeah. scream, uh, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> you can't. And you need to be patient and respectful of students and, mm. and their needs and, and what they need in the classroom. And then there was a, a teacher at high school who was my drama teacher and she mm-hmm. was this huge presence. She was loud. She was confident. She was so bright. And I just, again, just was in awe of her and was in awe of, her knowledge and how much she loved her subject and how much she loved drama and how much she wanted the best for us as students. And she, you know, as scary as it was, she forced us to perform and she, you know, put us on stage and she pushed us out of our comfort zone. And as a, you know, a shyish student, it was very confronting. But I think without that experience, I wouldn't be the educator, the drama teacher, the, the woman that I am today without having had those experiences that, that pushed me out of my comfort zone. Do you think it was the educators who pushed you toward the subject or your love of the subject? I think I wouldn't have loved the subject if I didn't have great mm. educators. Mm. Um, I think their wealth of knowledge teamed with their love for their subject and their passion, I think was something that was imparted in me. And mm. I now, as a drama teacher, try and, and and do the same. I try and push my kids out of their comfort zones and, you know, if something's not done correctly, I'm like, right, let's do it again, let's do it this way. I even jump in with them 
and play the drama games and, yeah. and do the activities and do the exercises and Sometimes it's, it sounds very Mr. G, but I'll perform for them. I was just thinking that, I was yeah. thinking about that, that body stocking that you get in. That's not imagining. <laughs> no, I have the animal masks and I just crawl Love around it. the ground. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's really important for kids to, yeah. it, it's, it's hard enough being a teenager and it's hard enough to, to step out of your comfort zone and to find the confidence. So if you have a teacher who is willing to look as ridiculous as they can and to show these kids that, that you know, nothing bad is going to happen if you perform, that actually it's a really liberating experience to create a piece of theatre and to perform it. I think if I can show them that that it's a fantastic experience and I can show them and, and teach by, and lead by example, then absolutely I'm going to do it. Plus also it gives me a chance to be on stage, which is fantastic. You know? <laughs> And I have to say that when Chris decided to get in production, she'd just, like, write herself in for little cameos in the production. So just uh, I think that says a lot about you, really. Yeah. I'm like, this is my production now. <laughs> I even think there was a production a few years ago where our lead developed tonsillitis um, oh, yeah. the week before the production. And I think it was during one of the tech rehearsals where I was like, it's okay, I've got this. So I was singing his song side stage and he was just, I you know, it. doing the actions, doing the dance moves, but, you know. Whatever it takes, the show must go on. Whatever it takes, absolutely, you know. Just I'll jump in a costume, honey, too, and, and yeah. go for it. Yeah. But I think that's important. It's that dedication. I think that that's what really shone through is how dedicated the teachers were, the students mm-hmm. were, and, yeah, you don't really get that in a maths class or English class, do you that level of dedication? Well, I suppose it's it's difficult in the, the you know the maths the math zone. There's not really many co-curricular opportunities in the yeah. the math zone, but I suppose drama is one of those one of those subjects where we do have the fortunate opportunity to not only teach our subject but then create opportunities for students to do that in a co-curricular space. Yeah. Um, and again, going back to you know, if, if a student doesn't feel that they are successful in the academic space, providing them with something, whether it's music, whether it's production, whether it's sport, whether it's, mm. you know, the chess club, whatever it might be, giving them mm. the opportunity to find success in a space removed from the classroom, I think is really important. Mm. What kind of teacher are you? How would you describe yourself as a teacher? Oh, look, I like to think I'm approachable. I like mm-hmm. to think I'm patient. I like to think that I am a teacher who does everything that she can to support every single student in my class. Sometimes it doesn't always work. I'm mm. constantly learning as well. Mm. I think it's really important that teachers continue to learn about their craft and about their skill. And I don't claim to be an expert just yet, but anything that I can learn to then impart within my classroom I think is really important but I've always said that I, I want to be a teacher that and I hope that I am be a teacher that students can come and talk to me about anything whether it's something to do with the classroom content whether something's happened you know at lunchtime even just come and have a chat about what they read on the news or mm. what they did on the weekend or have a chat about footy and things like that and I think in, in my current role I, I get a lot of opportunities to do that you know talking to students about you know life and mm. having discussions about world war ii or you know talking about the difference between helium and hydrogen and yeah. you know just just having those conversations with students and, and building relationships with them yeah. i think is a, is a really important role for us as educators not just to yeah. kind of go in and go content 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 which i think was something that i believed I needed to do very early on as a teacher. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like you have the pressure of, right, here's your curriculum, here's your content, teach it, the kids have to have these skills, I have to have this knowledge, go for it. And you forget about, well, actually, these are little humans and they want to talk to you, want to converse with you and, and want to learn about the world. So I think kind of as I've become more confident as a teacher, those building relationship exercises, I think, are becoming more important and I think are really paramount to our role as an educator. So I hope that I am a, an approachable teacher and a patient teacher and I hope that, 
you know, kids walk into my classroom and are excited to come into my classroom mm. and are excited to spend time learning what it is I want to teach them or to spend time in my space. Do you feel like getting older in the profession has allowed you to feel more confident and comfortable to create those relationships? Because if I reflect on being young and I looked yeah. young, I was very aware of creating that boundary and that separation between me and the students. And I don't think I was as good of a teacher for that because exactly as you said, I was so focused on being perfect in knowing all of my content and being prepared and looking as though I was well-researched that I let the building of those relationships fall away for the pressure of the content. And the Mm. older I've gotten and the less in my life, I suppose that's, particularly exciting <laughs> I'm not that worried anymore do you know what I mean like if yeah. I'm asking about my weekend it's not like I'm partying I'm you know doing the grocery shop so yeah I'm happy to have those conversations I've got nothing really to be concerned about keeping private yeah and I think it's it's made me better I don't know if you found the same thing I absolutely feel the same <clears throat> I think you know you come into teaching I was 22 when I started teaching mm. you're teaching kids I think I was teaching kids who were 17. Yeah. So you definitely feel like there's a bit of pressure on young teachers to really establish that boundary uh, and establish the very separate student-teacher roles. Mm. Um, but you're right. I feel like as I've gotten older and become, I suppose, more of an adult, you know, my school holidays, I'm moving house and yeah. I'm not going on these big, crazy, fancy holidays or not going out partying on the weekend and you know, I have a running joke with my boys, you know, or my seven my kids, you know, email me. I don't have a life. Email me on the weekend. It's fine. I'll email you back. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think back back when I was, um, yeah, starting out, you very much needed to to separate yourself from from building those relationships. And I think the more confident I've become, even just as an adult, yeah, I think the more confident I am in building those relationships with students. And I think that, yeah, you're right, a better teacher I am. And I think when you're younger, like I said, you get so stuck on content and so stuck on delivering the content and delivering the knowledge and ensuring the kids have the skills and you drill in those, you know, here's a paragraph, write it again, write it again, write it again, write it again, that you Mm -hmm. sometimes miss out on any other learning opportunities that come up in the classroom. Yes. Um, I'm thinking about a, a... a lesson that I had probably six years ago, six, seven years ago, in VCE drama and we're supposed to be talking about uh, performance analysis and then a student puts his hand up, Miss, this is really irrelevant to the discussion we're having at the moment, but can you just, can you tell me about tax returns and how I need to fill one out? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, I absolutely can. So we ended up having like a 30-minute discussion. You, I'd be useless to be like, yeah. <laughs> Look, you know what? It's fake it till you make it kind of thing, Laura. Um, (laughs) I was like, yes, you have to pay tax to the government. I don't know how much and I don't know why, but you just have to do it. You just fill out a tax return. Sometimes you get money back. Sometimes you don't. Um, It's really luck of the draw. So we ended up having just a discussion about tax. And I feel like if I had stuck to, you know, the the content-driven lesson, and said, no, nah, not talking about that, go talk to someone else. Firstly, you're cutting off a, a relationship, you know, yeah. and you're feeling like or you're suggesting to students that you're not approachable and you're not yeah. there to, to, to guide them and, and, and teach them things. And we wouldn't have had a great discussion about tax, which then led on to life and, yeah. and other types of, of topics as well. So I think sometimes you have to, it's, it's a bit of give and take with, with subject content. You just have to... Yeah. You know, yes, it's important to deliver the content you need to, but also don't let those other learning opportunities fall by the wayside as well. Even yeah. just a simple discussion, you know, with, you know, English English texts, as you know, a lot of them are yeah. based in history and have a lot of historical context. So, yeah. you know, we're studying um, animal farm at the school I'm at at the moment. So, and I love history and I love the Russian Revolution. So having those really interesting in-depth discussions about Russia and the revolution and then you know, leading on to monarchies and things like that. Yeah. I think if, if boys or, or kids are interested in learning about yeah. that, then why not talk about it? Yeah, I agree. I want to talk about drama. So <laughs> we have worked at school together. We know a number of drama teachers collectively. <laughs> Do you feel that drama is truly valued in education? Oh, I 
That's such a difficult question. I feel like it depends on who you're talking to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We, as drama teachers, constantly feel like we need to sell our subject. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, a lot of, you know, VSC information evenings or when you're talking to parents at parent-teacher interviews whose children are interested in drama, the first question you get is, well, what will drama get my student? What, mm. what, what, what career are they going to have if they choose drama? And it gets to the point where, yes, obviously choose drama or choose theatre studies if your child is interested in the art, interested in the dramatic field. But you also need to consider the skills that drama teaches students. We're one of the only subjects across an educational curriculum that teaches collaborative group work, that teaches public speaking skills, that helps boost self-confidence, that teaches critical and creative writing skills. It's a subject where those kind of human elements and those human skills are, are fostered and um, and a challenged as well. So mm. it's it's interesting in that you know people automatically assume that if you're choosing drama as a subject, it means it's a bludge subject or it's not going to get it's not going to get you anywhere. However, I think as society progresses and we become a lot more technological based. You know, you've got computers that can create algorithms for certain companies. You've got machinery Mm. that to create items and objects. But I feel like those kind of of confidence skills, public speaking skills, critical thinking skills, creative skills, those human skills are going to be so important in the future for the workforce. So I feel like that's almost like a selling point for Mm. drama. I feel once students are in drama, mm. especially as you kind of get up towards the year 10, 11 and 12 yeah. level, I feel like they find a lot of value within the subject. And even at my school currently, I've got a couple of kids who haven't really studied drama much before, but decided to choose it at BCE and have found that their confidence has just grown exponentially. So I feel like the skills are so transferable that we teach in drama and I think that the mindset about the subject needs to shift mm. uh, so that, you know, parents can see that that these that this subject can really help their kids in the future mm. and in, in the workforce as well. I think it's difficult though, I suppose, I was thinking about, you know, you know this the other day, when you look at how, and I don't want to get too political, but when you look at how, I suppose the government's response to the arts in the recent. I was going to ask you this about yeah. essential roles <laughs> and the arts being mm. very Not much essential of that belief. <laughs> yeah, and how that and it's funny. I've actually had a, he was a current student last year, a musician, and he mm. was speaking to this because obviously he couldn't do any gigs and mm. and all of that. I have also had again. She just finished year twelve last year when I had her on. And she's going into acting and singing and things like that as well and had similar conversations with careers counsellors around, you know, what's the backup if you go into this role? And she was very, I don't think she was offended, but she was kind of like, well, you wouldn't ask someone that was doing accounting what their backup was. No, what's your backup? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there is a lot of, and the irony is if you're good in the arts, you're paid very handsomely for it. So there is certainly opportunity but yeah, what what do you think about the non-essential value that the government has put on the arts? It's just so frustrating. I watch like, Netflix. Yeah, yeah. So okay, if you don't value the arts, then you can stop listening to music. You can stop watching Netflix. You can stop going to the national galleries. You can stop listening to the radio. You can stop going to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's just, it's almost like the arts has become something that when the government wants it, it's there and they use it. For mm. example, you know, a few years ago when we had those quite horrific bushfires, mm. there was musicians and the arts put on bushfire aid. Was that, I think that's correct, isn't it? Bushfire aid yeah. and raised millions of dollars for bushfire relief. Celeste Barber, fantastic I was just say, yeah. yeah, $50 yeah. million dollars for yeah. bushfire relief. So really arts-focused charity work And then on the flip side, a year later, when artists are struggling during COVID, where's their support? 
Mm. There's no support for artists mm. during COVID and during lockdown. And even to the point where, and I think this is the most frustrating part, was that the government was promoting artists' upskill, take up a trade, take up office administration. Here's some courses you can do to change your field, essentially, so you can continue mm. to work during COVID mm-hmm. or during mm. lockdown. Just, just missing the point entirely. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's it's difficult to sell your subject when and, and, and to promote your subject at a school level when it's not supported in the government level. So I want to talk about your decision to have a break from the profession. Mm-hmm. So how far into your career was it? What was the decision like for you? Why did you do that? So... I got about five years and I started feeling very ill and I wasn't sure mm. what was going on. I was having all of these symptoms. I was developing food intolerances. I was had quite sore stomach. I went and had many tests, as many tests as I could under the sun. No one could really figure out what was going on and it wasn't getting any better. At that point, I went to a kinesiologist and tried some alternative therapies. And essentially, it came down to the fact that I was suffering severely from stress. And I just couldn't live like that anymore. I couldn't Mm. live waking up every morning feeling extraordinarily nauseous. I couldn't live with not being able to eat anything except essentially celery. Um, Mm. I... Which is real. I have to acknowledge that. Like at school, you were having to restrict pretty much everything. I remember. Yeah. Lost a lot of weight because I wasn't, I couldn't eat properly, couldn't eat healthily. Well, I was eating, you know, I suppose overly healthily with the the celery. And it just, it just got to the point where I thought I, I can't, I can't continue in this way for the rest of my life. And what change do I have to make in order to live properly again, I suppose. So I spoke to our assistant principal of HR and I just said, look, I'm, I'm struggling. It's been five years of overwork, I suppose. Mm. Um, I suppose going back to the finger in every pie kind of a student, I was a finger mm. in every pie kind of a teacher. I mm-hmm. took on many opportunities, which were fantastic, but also sometimes I just felt like I couldn't say no. And especially mm. as a young teacher, as a graduate teacher, trying to prove yourself in your role and trying to essentially prove your worth to a school. And, you know, you have to reapply for our job every year for the first few years as well. So ensuring that I was doing everything that I could to, yeah, essentially prove my worth to the school was negatively impacting my health and my physical health and my mental health and well-being. So I said Mm. I needed to take a break and I needed to go overseas and just recharge, essentially recharge my batteries. So I had been to Edinburgh a few years previously on a holiday and absolutely fell in love with the city and thought, you know what, I'm going to take some time off and I'm going to move to Edinburgh and I'm not going to teach and I'm going to do something that's so far removed from teaching and just take a break for a little while. So I moved to Edinburgh in May of 2017 and found a fantastic job at a bar and made some brilliant friends and met so many fantastic people. And I was working for about four or five months and I thought to myself, look, I became a teacher for a reason. I love teaching and I love kids and I love providing kids with fantastic learning opportunities. So let's, I suppose, dip my toe back into the teaching world and and see what happens. And if Mm -hmm. I struggle and if I don't like it I'll just jump back out of the water and I was very very fortunate that I had the the job at the bar to to go back to as well so I ended up finding a role that was two days a week a drama teacher role that was two days a week at a a school in Edinburgh Uh, this school was actually one of in one of the most I suppose impoverished areas of Edinburgh Mm -hmm. the community itself was I suppose the students struggled a lot in terms of broken homes. There were some students who had to be removed from homes and were living in in care, in foster care. There was gang violence in the community, which then could 
sometimes came into school as well and a very, very high level of need in terms of learning disabilities. So it was definitely a rude awakening for me coming from, mm. you know, our school we worked at, which, yes, was in a, you know, a rough area at times, but actually the kids were fantastic, the school was fantastic and mm. really didn't have too much in terms of behavioural management issues and, no, and certainly very high-performing, high yeah. yeah, and certainly not to the extent of, well, any behavioural issues, not to the extent of what I experienced at my school in Edinburgh. And I came home pretty much every day for I think the first two months in tears, like, what have I done? Mm. I can't do this anymore. Blah, blah, blah. And I was very lucky that I had a very, very supportive group of friends who I met at that school who we all sat together at lunchtime and we all just talked about our day and talked about the students and what we could do to support each other. And after, I think, two months, it all just clicked and fell into place. Mm. And it was a really great school to, I suppose, dip my dip my toe back into. And like I said, something or a, a school that I'd never, or a type of school or a type of community that I'd never worked in before. So essentially I was working two days a week and then there was a position in the English department that came up. So I went from two days to five days a week and taught English and drama for a little while. And then as the school year ended, there was an opportunity to work in the learning support department. And I'd never done many work in learning support before, but I thought, you know what? New challenge. Let's do it. Why not? And it's the best decision I've ever made. It completely reinvigorated my love for teaching and my passion for mm. teaching and it's something I've never considered doing before but now it's 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 my pathway and you know I was I was teaching students with extraordinarily high levels of need in terms of dyslexia global delays autism uh, mutism as well partial deafness partial blindness ADD ADHD so so many students with such high level of need and it was it was in incredible just to see how positive so many of these kids were considering the difficulties and challenges that they faced every day not even just sometimes just at school with the academics but going home as well some of them had mm -hmm. troubling home lives as well and as I said it, it completely changed my perception of of where I now wanted to go and what I wanted to do with my teaching and I suppose the changing the focus for me of where I wanted to, to be as a teacher. So there's two things I want to speak about. The mm -hmm. first one is do you think that you suffered burnout? Absolutely. Do you think that's where you're at? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. How, what's the advice that you have for, because I think it's in that five to seven years mm. is when most people leave the profession what advice do you give people or could you give people in those early years to avoid getting to the place that you got to? I think for me it was not being able to say no or not having mm. the confidence within myself to say no. And I was so lucky, you know, I had such a supportive group of friends at, at our school that we were at and yeah. it's not like I wasn't supported and it's not like I had to do anything by myself, but I think even just me personally, I, I'm a very independent person as well. And I think I wanted to prove to myself as well that I could do everything and I didn't mm -hmm. need to rely on people and I didn't need to ask for help, which was to my detriment. So mm. for early years teachers, I think a few things. First of all, lean on the people who are around you and mm. find your people and know that they are there to support you, whether it's your VIT mentor, whether it's your head of department, whether it's the person who sits next to you in, in yeah, the exactly. staff room, you know, whether it's the people who you have lunch with every day, whether it's, you know, a professional support staff member, whoever it might be, find your people and they're, help, mm. and they're there to support you, especially in your first few years. And even, even now to this day, I've been teaching 11 years and I still find my people and sometimes I still, yeah. you know, need support and need help. And I think that's just what teaching is. It's a, it's a, mm. it's a collaborative environment. It's an environment where, people are there to help each other and to support each other. I feel like young teachers or, or graduate teachers also need to look after themselves as well. So yes, it's kind of important to, you know, ingrain yourself in the school community, but don't do so much that you've lost yourself and you've lost time for yourself as well. It's really important to find that work-life balance. And I think mm. I lost that as well. So make sure you find the time to turn off your computer at night, turn off your computer a day on the weekend 
maybe set yourself up at a, at a desk if you can in your home or find yourself a work area, but then also have your personal mm. space area. So really try and find that distinction between work and home and work and life. And even, you know, that's still something that I struggle with as well, even, you know, a decade later. But I think it's it's something that will help keep you sane. You know, and you yeah. need to have that work-life balance. And even if you know you have a whole pile of marking, you're like, oh, my God, I've got this stuff to do. <laughs> go for a walk or go out for lunch yeah. or go see your friends or your family or just take some time for yourself. It's really important. Yeah. yeah. Other thing I wanted to ask was you're talking about these sort of intense literacy supportive roles that you're having. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's the opportunity you have to work with small groups that makes it so much more exciting? Because I imagine I would have students with a number of different learning challenges in my classroom, but the fact that I'm teaching 26 of them mm-hmm. means that I can't form that bond. And even though I know that there's an issue and I will try and cater to that, the relationship can never be built the way that you potentially can in these small groups. And I'm wondering whether or not that opportunity of relationship building, is that what's reinvigorated your teaching or is it the content that you're working with? I think so. Never underestimate, you know, even just, like you said, you, you work with 26 kids and you're worried that you're not creating those relationships. With the boys that I speak or the kids that I speak I speak to and that I work with, a lot of them say, look, as long as the teacher knows who I am and knows how I learn, then they really Mm. appreciate that. And for them, that is building a relationship. That is the teacher knowing the student and knowing how they learn. And, yeah, so you're right. I'm in a very fortunate position that I do work with smaller groups and I see my kids four times a week and I know each of them individually, not only as students or as learners but as people. So, for me, that's a really exciting role to have because I do get to work quite closely with, with a few students but I 100% understand how it can be very difficult as well for classroom teachers to cater for so many different learning needs in a classroom. But, you know, essentially, like I said, the, the students that I've spoken with, they just appreciate the fact that any kind of, of support from a teacher in a classroom for them is relationship building. And as long mm. as, you know, maybe they are allowed to type rather than handwrite or you allow them to record your seminar on their computer rather than having to take notes or something as simple as printing off the PowerPoint so that they can highlight rather than having to write down notes or having a conversation with them rather than asking them to do a test. Those kinds of learning experiences for them really provide them with the confidence to to find success in the classroom and, and for them it is relationship building. So I feel like teachers also sometimes feel like, oh, I need to do, create like seven different resources for 12 different yeah, types of learning true. issues and, and things like that, it can be really simple. It can be something as simple as a printout of notes. It can be something simple as letting the kid record on their phone, taking pictures of notes on on the whiteboard yeah. or whatever it might be, just so they can feel that they can find success in the classroom. Yeah. I want to get more into this role, but before I do that, mm. I want to talk about the opportunity you had to work in that bookstore. I just <gasps> think this is the best story and I remember you were planning your trip and you're like oh Laura I've got this week at the bookstore in somewhere in Scotland Mm -hmm. so I want you to tell everybody before I do get into this role because I'm really excited to talk about it but Mm -hmm. people need to know that this is a thing that they can do if they travel overseas (laughs) it's absolutely incredible so there's a little place in southern Scotland called Wigtown and it's apparently the, the book capital of the UK and it's this tiny little town maybe a couple thousand people who live in this town and every second store is a bookstore and I was in heaven and not just like you know your Dimmicks kind of bookstores but antique bookstores as well where there's books from the 1800s 1700s really really old beautiful books and you walk in and you just smell that you know that old kind of book smell it's yeah yeah like one of my favorite smells uh actually a friend of mine or a colleague of ours from from school she pointed me towards this opportunity this bookshop so essentially it's you book it on Airbnb and what it is is, is a bookstore and, and, and an apartment above the bookstore as well. So you essentially you Airbnb and you hire, you rent the apartment and then the mm. bookstore down below, you actually run the bookstore for the time that you are then staying in the apartment. And there is a community there who they take you through collecting the money, they take you through how you can price books, they say you can create any kind of book displays that you want. So I 
because I went around Christmas time, there was a big shop window. So I created a Christmas tree out of books and kind of wrapped some fairy lights around it. And it was so quaint and beautiful and like no other experience I think that you'll ever have. And I was talking to the, um, one of the people who helps run the bookshop and she was saying that it's essentially booked out on Airbnb like two or three years in advance. Mm. It's it's incredible because I think it's just one of those one-off opportunities that's so specific and really I don't think I've ever heard of any other opportunity like that as well. And actually while I was that week that I was staying at the bookshop, a reporter from I think it was maybe CBS America was doing a news article (laughs) on the bookshop Classic. So get the drama teacher get the drama teacher <laughs> the one week was there <laughs> so I ended up on like American television as well I love that so yeah it was you know like I said it was just such a, a lovely village a lovely town the people in there were fantastic and I think there's certain residents of the village who will always no matter who's running the bookshop will always go in and buy a book or will always go in and give the new the new proprietor, I suppose, a box of biscuits just to say welcome. It was, yeah, it was really sweet. And I'd look, I hardly got any actual customers because it was December and it was snowing and it was freezing. But, you know, it was lovely to just be there and have some some quiet time, some downtime. I did lots of reading. There was a nice little window in the apartment above the bookshop that was like a bay window that was a little reading chair so you could just look out on the town and and do some reading and I think those those little opportunities don't come along very often so when they do it's important to just grab them and take them yeah totally okay so I want to talk about this new role so you have just finished a graduate certificate of inclusive education Mm -hmm. what did you learn in that course and how is it helping you in your current role in learning support yeah so essentially that course was, a set, was, I suppose, a precursor to then going on and, and continuing with the Masters of Inclusive Education. I think it was a really great introduction to, to that qualification. So we learned a lot about individual learning plans and creating strength-based learning plans. So what can the student do? Not what can't they do? Because having a, a negative mindset about, you know, a student disability you know, doesn't, doesn't really help them. So what can a student do? What are their strengths and how can we support their strengths in the classroom? So creating ILPs around their strengths. Behaviour management plans as well. So how different students behave within classrooms and how we can support them to maybe make better decisions in terms of their behaviour. Uh, looking at behavioural behavioral issues as well and what they mean and, and how we can support those students in the classrooms. We looked at positive learning environments and how we can cater to all learners within positive learning environments. It was a real scope of different experiences, I suppose, within that course. Mm. And it has really, you know, me, I love learning. So as, as difficult as it was to do that course whilst in lockdown, you know, being online. Yes, in 2020, that's right. I know, being online all day at school and then having to be online at night and on the weekends sent me a bit mm. batty. But I loved the content that I did learn and it really has, you know, continued to inspire my thirst for, for knowledge and, and wanting to now go on and do the Masters as well. But, yeah, it's essentially just looking at, I suppose, also the, the the politics behind disability standards and the legalities of ensuring that students with disabilities are supported within the classroom and reasonable adjustment is made for them to find success in the classroom, whether it's classwork, whether it's assessment, whatever it might be, and ensuring that schools and, and staff are, are equipped and feel confident with differentiating and, and, and modifying work as well. I know it's it's something really interesting for me because I don't remember doing anything like this in my teacher training, in my dip ed. I don't know if you... No. No, Laura, nothing. No. no, nothing. So I essentially came, yeah, became a teacher not knowing yeah. about differentiation or not knowing much about learning disabilities. And yet we have so many students in our care who are neurodiverse, who mm. think differently, who work differently, who behave differently, not incorrectly, just differently. Mm. And yet 
we have been taught as educators, well, especially now, our generation, I suppose we've been taught yeah. to teach one way, whereas yeah. <laughs> there's so much diversity now in the classroom. How can we actually cater for that diversity? So mm. it's something that I'm so interested in and so passionate about and something that I'm going to continue learning about as, as much as I can. And even just doing professional development, going to seminars, um, signing up for, for, for newsletters, signing up for, for journal articles as well, and, and just looking at how we can just create resources and create opportunities for students with all different types of learning needs in the classroom. I think what really stunted me early on in the education game was what I thought good learning would looked like and when... 100%. Especially, you know, you've got school tours and principals just dropping in and things like that. What, in my ideal world, what should my classroom look like to be the most impressive way of learning? And what I've realised over time is what I thought it should look like is actually not the best learning at all. And I don't know if you found coming back from lockdown, because I was doing some like teaching to support a staff member that had to take some leave last year right out of lockdown. So I had to do some remote teaching and I came back for the year sevens and eights. So I was, I had them as they were coming out of lockdown and the year sevens had no ability to regulate themselves physically, emotionally, academically. They were getting up in the middle of class. They were irritating each other. They were moving. They were you know, sending me in absolute rubbish work because they didn't have any persistence and stamina in terms of actually creating best work. Mm -hmm. And I'm still working a lot with my students on that, that, you know, it's not just about getting it done. It's about giving me the best thing you can possibly create, please. Mm -hmm. And so I think the kids we're getting are no longer able to just adapt to the classroom the way we want it. And Mm -hmm. we now have to start coming to the party. And so I'm wondering what do you think a good learning environment looks like now? Oh, you, look, you're 100% right. And I think, you know, when I first started teaching, for me, a good learning environment was silence. Kids, heads down, writing, silence. And I'm like, well, this is, this is what I experienced at high school. So this yeah. is, ob- and I loved high school and I did really <laughs> well in high school. So this is obviously what an effective classroom looks like. Great, let's do it. And then you get into the classroom and yeah. the, the reality is so different because you're right, like yeah. you have students who like to talk, you have students who maybe work at a different pace than others, you have students who can't work independently, you have students just, you know, all over the all over the place really. And you kind of, mm-hmm. like, and I know I was standing there in my first couple of years going, oh, well, no, it has to be silent, it has to be silent, it has to be silent. It's not, it's not the way. And you're right, I no. think last year was so difficult for students in that they, they lost the the processes of yeah. school. They lost the appropriate way to, just simple things like the appropriate way to line up for a class, the appropriate way to, you know, come and stand behind a chair, you know, the like you said, standing up in the middle of the class and walking over somewhere else or shouting out or things like that. They didn't mm. have the foundation last year of just those simple processes in the classroom so now coming back this year, you have to start again, essentially. Mm. I found I had to start again with a lot of, of my students. Right, remember, here's how we line up. We need to be respectful. We can't walk into the classroom bash, bashing and punching each other. We can't call out. If you have a question, just raise your hand, those kinds of things. Mm. I don't mind mild chat in my classroom. I think the more opportunities that, that kids have to engage with their peers and engage with me, yeah. great. Mm. I love it. Fantastic. But there's a difference between an appropriate working volume and chaos and, you know, booming voices and, you know, kids getting out of their chairs and walking over and like (laughs) headlocking someone else in the the opposite corner or or things like that. So I think I was listening to one of your episodes the other day. I think it was maybe with Emma and Cam who were talking about how, you know, essentially they're teaching year 12s who are actually technically year 10s because they're missed. A, a whole year of of those processes and of of the resilience of the of the independent work of the being organized of you know respectful behavior all those really important I think classroom techniques that we teach them you know you've got kids in year eight this year who are essentially in grade sixes so That's I think right. it's you know it's important it's important to reestablish those procedures and those those classroom management techniques but I think also for me 
the, the perfect classroom is one where, you know, it's, it's not silence. Look, during tests, absolutely. Assessments, absolutely. When I'm trying to give instruction, absolutely. But I'm not going to be one of those sticklers for, you know, be silent, find line between teaching them appropriate engagement and, and not appropriate engagement, I suppose. Yeah, that's it. I'd love to know about if you had an opportunity to have education, the system of education, exactly as you would like it, what kind of changes would you make? Oh, gosh. Goodness me. I think for me, smaller class sizes. Mm. I teach classes at the moment, look, ranging anywhere between 25 kids to some of my classes of four students. I think for those for those core subjects, if we can have smaller class sizes, fantastic. Somewhere around between 15 and 20, I think, is a it's a perfect number. Uh, I feel like more support for graduate teachers in terms of, you know, we already kind of reduce loads, but even just the all the other expectations of co-curricular activities and meetings and, and this VIT and, and this assessment and doing this and doing that, I think a lot of pressure is on graduate teachers in the early years when they're supposed to be honing their craft, yet we still mm. put so much pressure on them to do so many of the other things as well, including, like I said, co-curricular, um, the pressure of, of proving yourself and improving your worth as a teacher. I think more focus and emphasis on teacher training in terms of, of, of learning issues and, and learning disabilities as well. I think, mm. like we said, you know, our generation of teachers, we didn't learn about no any learning disabilities. I don't know if that's different for, for other, other teachers in, in other courses, but I know that, you know, I didn't. So I think, and I, and I hope, I really hope that that has changed, but I, I mm. don't know, I, I don't really speak much to any any students who are currently undertaking education studies, but I hope that's changed even now. So, even if so, I feel like it would be theoretical, Christy, like this mm. is the issue that I think that we have is even though I learnt some of the things I'd forgotten by the time I got into classroom mm. or it was irrelevant in my application when I got into the actual classroom and so I think you're right. If we had an opportunity to say no additional jobs for mm. grad teachers mm-hmm. at all for mm-hmm. at least the first year, reduce the load slightly because I think they what are they two lessons down maybe at high I school? I think so. I it's think it's some, it's not much. It's not much at all. Yeah, and because I know when I started, I had production, mm. and so I was reduced load, but then I had production on top of that. Mm. And you know, with that's five extra hours a week anyway, and I was supposed to get time allowance which just made me over allotted technically. So I don't know if I, <laughs> so it was all I don't know. Nothing, yeah. yeah. And then I was assistant science quarter and production in my second year, which I'm not quite sure what was going, like yeah. what experience I had to do that anyway. In my right, story, I, think, but I think I was coordinating in my second year. Like what, what it. is that? It's, yeah. Yeah. And, but you do these things and I reckon if you had an opportunity to, yeah, reduce the load, but get them into lit support or into mm-hmm. a literacy support group once a fortnight to work with those students and to work with the educators that are building those foundations and supporting those students and having those big conversations. Maybe that needs to be embedded where you're really watching how you can support those students who are neurodiverse and who have learning challenges. Absolutely. And I think going into other classrooms is such a fantastic learning experience. I know we had a program at at our school where we were encouraged to go and do classroom Mm. observations and Mm. learn from others, even if it's from a different faculty, even if it's someone from a a different teaching generation to you, just see. And I think it's also seeing how different students learn in different classrooms as well. So one particular student. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I know I have, I teach kids at the moment who, you know, despise science, but love wood tech. So seeing just how they work in those two different environments and you're right, how they react to different teachers. I think I did, what, 10 weeks of teacher placement in my DIVED? That's not enough. Yeah, me too. That's yeah. not enough at all for, yeah. for really the realities of, of what classroom teaching is. So I think, you know, more as, as many opportunities as, as graduates can get and as new teachers can get in the classroom and in different classroom environments and working with different kids as well. And that's the thing with learning with learning disabilities is they're like on a spectrum. It's almost like dyslexia has a spectrum, you know, not, mm. no one student has 
the same issues. You know, one student can be a fantastic reader, but their spelling, you know, is inhibited. One student can uh, present uh, their knowledge verbally whilst others prefer to type. So it's, it's, it also really depends on the students as well and, and how they best learn. So creating those relationships with the students and then seeing them in different classroom environments, working one-on-one with them, I think is imperative as well in, in graduate teachers feeling confident with, I suppose, the, the, the scope of, of yeah. what our role entails. And I think that we do take for granted the more experience you get, the more sort of strategies you have in your yeah. bag to go, oh, well, this isn't working for you. Why don't you try this? But, you know, as a grad teacher, you're you're trying so hard to plan a lesson. Mm. If that derails or there's a student that doesn't get it, mm. you don't have all of the things, all the all the support that you know works because you've had that experience. And I think the more experience you can get and the more strategies you can get behind you, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Because those first few few years are, are essentially building your toolbox of strategies. That's right. And, you know, you can walk into a class with your, you know, a 50-minute lesson with a minute-by-minute a, a minute lesson plan ready to go. Within the first three minutes, it could all go down the toilet and then you're left with mm-hmm. nothing and you've got 47 minutes to go, right, um, hmm, what am I doing? no idea so yeah it's you're right it's 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 those strategies that that I think are really important and that we take for granted you're right as 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 um teachers who've been doing this for a while yeah last question Mm -hmm. great lessons great life lessons (laughs) what can you impart on the audience today Christy (laughs) great life lessons goodness me um great life lessons you're such a teacher goodness me yeah (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's my G-rated response. Uh, <laughs> um, the thing that has just popped into my head is listen to your gut and listen to what you need and what your body needs and what your brain needs as well. I think, especially for me, I literally listened to my literal gut and took time mm. off work and went on a journey and I knew that I couldn't continue working the way I was working if I wanted to be a teacher anymore. So I had to step away from my role. I had to find some inner peace. I had to look after my mental health and well-being and look after myself for a little while. And it was on that journey, I suppose, that led me back to teaching. And Mm. I think for a lot of people, they don't listen to their intuition and don't listen to their gut. And I think it's a really, really important thing to do. And it's really important to listen to what, it is that you need, whether it's, you know, putting down your marking for five minutes and having a cup of tea, whether it's yep. foregoing reading the, the novel for going out on a lunch date or a dinner date with your friends or your, or your loved ones. I think you need to look after yourself. It's a pretty intense profession we're in. And I think mm. people underestimate that. People underestimate that a lot of what we do comes home with us, not just the physical marking or, or the work but also the emotional load the mental load yeah. of dealing with however many students we deal with in a day and and their emotional needs and and, men, and mental health and well-being needs as well so I think it's really important to look after yourself in in your role and the more you look after yourself the more you listen to your gut the more that you're going to to love what it is that you do mm. I think so many teachers that's their identity. It's teacher first. And I've got a teacher Instagram. Mm -hmm. There's so many educators on there whose whole profile is all about being a teacher. And I think that if you stop and think about who you are without teaching, that's a really good place to start. Like who actually are you without the teacher? Mm. Because I think that we all hide in a way behind being a teacher and think that that defines us. And it really is a job Mm. at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, I think, yeah, stepping away and finding out who you are is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, like I said, it's so hard to sometimes find that balance and it's a very gray area, but I think, and look, like I said, it's only recently happened for me finding that balance. Um, Mm -hmm. I spent a long time hiding within my role as a teacher and that was my life. Teaching was my Mm -hmm. life. And it's only in the last couple of years where I've gone, you know what? Yes, I love teaching and I love what I do and I love working with kids and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. 
but at the end of the day it is a job and you need to mm. live your life as you you know as Laura as Christy as as as, as a human and yeah. and realize that yes teaching is a job and as much as you can love it you need to look after yourself as well yeah Thank you so much. It was so good to see you. You're I haven't seen you for so long. Know, it's been crazy. I know. It's so <laughs> nice to see you. And thank you so much for, for having me on. I've, I've had a great morning and a really nice catch up with you, Laura. So thank you. Thank you.